Good morning, everybody. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Stephen Atherton. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. So happy to be back here with you, continuing on in our series in Luke. So for those of you that don't know, I was in the military a long time ago. I was in the military. And there are several things that I learned while I was in the military, but there's three things that really stuck out to me. The first one was always have a presentable haircut. It's really important. So when I went from basic training and tech school, you know, they, were, they would go and buzz cut you and it, it always had to look nice. So when I went to my first base, which was Effie Warren in Cheyenne, first day there, I sit down, you know, my hair had grown a little bit, it was a little wispy. And one of the sergeants looked at me and goes, hey, you, go get a haircut. I was like, yes, sir, I'm sorry, I'll get my haircut. And I sit there for a second. He goes, no, seriously, get up right now and go get a haircut. So in that moment, I had to get up. So I learned that really fast. You have a good haircut. Another one is hurry up and wait. This was, yeah, for those of you that know military, this is a big one. There was one time in tech school that our sergeant woke us up at 2 a.m., made us run four miles in the rain to get to the hospital to stand there for four hours before they gave us our shots and then drew our blood and then I passed out. But either way, that was another one I learned is hurry up and wait. And finally, a big one I learned is know your place. Know your place. Rank is really, really important in the military. There's one time I was out in the missile field. We were at what's called the MAF. It's the place that we slept at. It was where we hung out. And it, it was pretty relaxed there. It wasn't a lot happening. Well, this new guy walked in the door. He was a lieutenant. We called him Butter Bars because they were fresh out of the academy, but they outranked all of us. And he walked in the door and was like, hey man, how's it going? And he gets in my face. He's like, are you serious? Don't you know what rank I am? Are you serious right now? I was like, okay, yes, sir. He goes, did you just say, yeah, sure to me? Really, son? Is that what you said? And so again, I learned really quick that rank is important. So in the, this world that we live in, just like the military, status seems like it's a really important thing. People know who is the highest in the company. People know who's the lowest, who's the peon, who's the one that's just sorting the mail out. We know the rich from the poor, the elite from the lower class. But this morning, in this account, this beautiful account that we get to see, we're going to see that no matter who you are, no matter what status you think you have or don't have at Jesus' feet, we are all equals. At Jesus' feet is a level playing field. We're going to see that at Jesus' feet, there's healing and there's wholeness. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how wealthy or poor you are, doesn't matter if you're an executive or if you're an outcast, if you're a child or an adult, if you're sick or if you're well, there is healing at the feet of Christ. When we see the truth of our need to be healed spiritually, we see our desperation for him. And in this account, a desire to fall at his feet in desperate, humble faith. This morning, do we see ourselves as too good for Jesus? Do we think of ourselves like that butter bar did as just too good for everyone? I'm, I don't need Jesus. Don't you see what rank I am? Don't you see how good I am? 
This morning, do we, do we see ourselves as not good enough for Jesus? Not even able to approach him? Or do we see the truth that we are all equal in his eyes, all desperately in need of him no matter who we are? Knowing that he's the one with authority over it all. He's the one that's bigger than it all, and he's the one able to help us through it all. Bringing us to the one right response to the king, that humble, desperate faith. We're going to see two accounts unfold this morning. First one is verses 40 through 42 and 49 through 55, which I'm calling desperation for a daughter. And then we're going to see verses 43 through 48, which is desperation of a daughter. All seeing at the end the truth of desperate, humble faith. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord God, you are so good. You're so great and greatly to be praised. God, I pray this morning as we open your word as we go through this section in Luke, God, that you would open our eyes to see you more clearly. God, that we would see that each of us need you desperately. It doesn't matter who we are or or what we've done, God, we need you. God, I pray that you would help us see your loving kindness in our lives, even through pain and trials, God, that you are still there. And we know that we can find healing through you. Love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you haven't yet, open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. We're starting in verse 40. As Colton read, it's some page number in the Pew Bibles. So hopefully you remember that page number because I do not. Starting in verse 40, it says this. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him for they were all waiting for him. So from the beginning of chapter eight, we see Jesus with a huge crowd of people following him. They're they're listening to everything he had to say. They're watching these miracles being performed just one after the other. And even in the midst of this giant crowd following him around, Jesus decided to take a trip across the lake like we saw last week. Where in this trip across the lake, we get to see his authority over nature and over demons which takes us to our passage today, where he returns from the other side of the lake, continuing this idea of his complete authority over everything. Today, seeing his authority over sickness and death, seeing it played out in two very different people, two very different people that even in their differences are the same in the eyes of the Lord. Two different people that see the truth of the only one with true authority. Again, understanding the one right response to the king, which is desperate, humble faith. So as we step into these verses, we're reintroduced to the same giant crowd that Jesus and the disciples left on the shore of that lake waiting for the return of the one who was doing all these mighty, miraculous things. Now, talk about celebrity, though. You got to think about this. We don't know how long Jesus and the disciples were gone. We have no idea how long they were gone, but that whole crowd of people, they stuck around on that shore. 
They waited for him. That, that's pretty celebrity status right there. When everyone just waits around for you to come back. Which takes us to the first person that Jesus encounters after getting off the boat. Verse 41, and there came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue. So as I said at the beginning of the verses, this is the start of our first account, 40 through 42, which also goes into 49.55, the desperation for a daughter. So the first individual that approaches Jesus is a man named Jairus, who is a ruler of the synagogue. So before we dive into this account unfolding these verses this morning, I feel like there's a couple elements that are really important that we see just to help us understand what's happening. So first things first, this man Jairus, it says, is the ruler of the synagogue. So the synagogue was a place where the Jewish people would go to worship and they were, there was, they were in a majority of the big cities in Israel. This specific one was in Capernaum. So these rulers of the synagogue, they were in charge of running the entire place. And not just running it, they were in charge of teaching, they were in charge of the worship services, they observed the day-to-day things, you name it, and they probably had their hand in it. So they were a big deal in the religious world. They were a really big deal to the Jewish people. Most likely one of the highest ranked individuals that you could find in this context. So another thing to know is that typically these rulers of the synagogue were Pharisees. So if you remember up to this point in Luke, we've seen the Pharisees doing a lot of different stuff. We've seen them in action so many times. And in each of those accounts, what are they doing? They're mocking Jesus for what he was doing. They're questioning his every single step, trying so hard to prove him wrong. So with that being said, it sets the stage for a really unique account that we're walking into. Where this Pharisee, a man who most likely had some kind of qualms with Jesus at some point, does the unthinkable of a man of his stature, of his rank. End of verse 41, and falling at Jesus' feet, falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As we've been going through these different accounts in Luke, I've been trying to put myself in the shoes of these different individuals that Jesus is interacting with. Just to feel the emotion that's taking place, to, that it's not just words on a page, but these are accounts that actually happened. To feel the emotion that's taking place as God in the flesh is restoring things right before people's eyes. And this story is packed with emotion. And more than anything, it's packed with desperation. So we see this ruler of the synagogue, the highest and most prestigious completely and utterly wrecked, knowing that his poor 12-year-old daughter was dying. He's probably tried everything on planet Earth to help his little girl, but nothing's working. He's got to be racking his brain. What do I do? I have to do something. I'll do anything to save my daughter. When he remembered the one man who he knows can do it, he knows can heal his daughter. Word's gone out all throughout the land about this Jesus. 
He knows that he's shown authority over nature, over demons, and in the past, he's already shown power over sickness. So surely he can heal his daughter. Again, trying to put myself in the shoes, I think about what I would do. What I would do if my daughter, if Amara was in this same situation, and the answer is anything. I would climb the highest mountain I possibly could. I would swim in the deepest seas. I would lay down my life in desperation for my little girl. And we have to understand that in this, when we're thinking about him doing anything for his daughter, we see this Pharisee risking it all to seek out Jesus. He was risking it all, being a Pharisee, knowing what the other Pharisees thought, seeking out this Jesus that they were against, knowing that he is the true healer. He was risking everything. But he didn't care. He knew the only one who could truly save. He understood that Jesus, the healer, was the solution. And at that moment, he approached Jesus. Like I said, you have to think about this. This gigantic crowd of people know who he is, this ruler of the synagogue, and he did the unthinkable. As I said, for this ruler, for a Pharisee, he threw himself at Jesus' feet. He lowered himself in desperation. He didn't care about the repercussion. And in this humble, desperate faith, asked Jesus to heal his 12-year-old daughter. At Jesus' feet, it didn't matter what rank he was. It didn't matter his status or how great his reputation. He, in that moment, realized the only thing that mattered was Jesus, the healer. Jairus, in his own mind, he could have thought that he was too good for Jesus. He could have thought he was too high up for him, that he can figure it out on his own. But he doesn't. He sees the truth that Jesus is the only way. In this moment of humble, desperate faith. And in this, Jesus agrees and follows the man which takes us into the end of verse 42. It says, as Jesus went, the people pressed around him and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. So as Jesus is walking with Jairus, this great crowd that was waiting for him on the shore is pressing around him, which literally means choking him as they were pressing so hard. A couple weeks ago, I guess it was like a month ago, I went to a concert with one of my friends. And for those of you that don't know, this is a fun fact about me, I like crazy music, like really crazy music. They call it Christian death metal, which doesn't sound like it makes any sense whatsoever, but it's great, I love it. And you can guess that at these concerts it can get a little rowdy, where you get to the front and everyone's moshing and pushing each other around. But the crowd, it's like choking, it's suffocating. You, you have so many people squishing you and it, it feels like you can't move at all. That's what pops up in my mind as I think about this crowd that's around Jesus. It's like it's choking him as they're trying to maneuver and get through. And in this crowd, we're brought into our second account in these verses. Verses 42 through 48, the desperate daughter. 
So a woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years, 12 years, was there in the crowd. And not only was she dealing with this physically, which had to have just been horrific, no doctor able to heal her, but this would have made her ceremonially unclean according to the old law as well. Leviticus 15, 25 through 27 talks about that if any woman continues to bleed outside of her time of the month, she's considered unclean. And it says that everything that she touches in that time becomes unclean as well. So she can't lie down without the bed becoming unclean. She can't sit on a chair, otherwise that becomes unclean. She in every way would have been an outcast, removed from society as a whole. Because if she wasn't removed from society, she was gonna make everyone else around her unclean. So this is a really big deal. It's a really big deal for several reasons. The first one is again, she's unclean. So her even being in the crowd would have just been repulsive to the people. According to the old law, she was actually supposed to call out to everyone that she was unclean. Just so the crowd would stay away from her because she was that much of an outcast. Unlike Jairus, this woman was the lowest of the low in society. She was an outcast who wasn't even allowed to enter the synagogue. But like Jairus, she sees the truth of who Jesus is, not caring about the repercussions. In verse 44, she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. In her desperate, humble faith, she pushed through the crowd, fought to get to Jesus, knowing she's unclean, but knowing he's the only one that can heal. And as she approaches him, like Jairus the ruler, kneeling at Jesus' feet, falling at Jesus' feet, she does something unthinkable. She reaches out and touches the fringe of his garment. As we saw in the verse in Leviticus, if she did this, it would make the wearer of that garment unclean. But as per usual, Jesus is bringing the upside down here. He doesn't become unclean, but makes her clean. The one who has authority over sickness, who reverses the curse. And immediately she was healed. Jesus did something that no doctor could do. He healed this woman physically, but not just that. We're going to see in a moment, restores her in every way. Verse 45, and Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. So I really love these verses because at first glance, it might seem like Jesus doesn't know what's going on in this crowd. Especially with Peter's response of, Master, there's so many people. How in the world are we supposed to know who touched you? But that's not it at all. We know Jesus being fully man, fully God knows who touched him. But in his loving kindness is giving the woman the opportunity to step forward. 
He's giving her the opportunity to come forward and for her and the crowd to glorify God for the miracle that just took place. These verses also bring out Jesus' supernatural power here that he says went out when she touched his garment. This isn't saying that Jesus couldn't control what just happened, that he's not sovereign and fully aware of the situation like, like she went and stole some power out of him. But in reality, he was fully aware that he was healing this woman, was fully aware of who she was and knew the courage and faith it took for her to step out. She could have thought she was too far gone for Jesus. She was too much of an outcast, too gone to be healed. But in her desperate, humble faith, she reached out. Verse 47, and when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. This woman of the lowest class falls down at Jesus' feet, declaring and praising the one she knew could heal the one true king. She knew he was the only way. And what Jesus says here actually laser focuses in on this woman's faith. Something so interesting when talking about the woman's faith in this account is what Jesus says to her regarding it. Your faith has made you well. So the Greek word translated here, made you well, can also be translated has made you whole. Showing that her healing is complete. Even more interesting is that it's the same Greek word translated to save. And it's the normal New Testament word for saving someone from their sin. Which suggests that the woman's faith also led to her spiritual salvation in this moment. But that's not all, folks. Are you ready for this? It's another great element. After saying she's made whole, he says, go in peace, which is shalom, which also means wholeness. And not just that, in the midst of this, he calls her daughter. That's a whole lot of awesome in a couple words, right? Now you gotta think, as we're talking about this, being called a woman this, this whole time in the verses, knowing she's, she's been bleeding for 12 years, she's at least Jesus's age. So this might seem like a really odd thing to call someone who's his age or maybe even older. The glorious truth about him calling her this is that after 12 years of being an outcast, she's brought back into the fold, being healed. And not just that, she's brought into a family. From that point forward, she's a daughter of the king. She's justified, she's adopted, she is made whole. What an incredibly beautiful picture we're seeing here. This woman of the absolute lowest class, the outcast, the one seemingly too far gone, because she was physically, spiritually, and socially broken in every way, was made whole, made a daughter at the feet of Jesus. 
the only one who has authority to make every aspect of her whole again. From here, we're thrown back into the account of the other individual that in desperate, humble faith sought Jesus for healing. So both individuals talked about so far, so very different. The highest religious man, the lowest class woman, both falling down at Jesus' feet, equal at Jesus' feet. And humble, desperate faith, seeking the only one who can truly heal. Verse 49, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter's dead. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. So while the scene's happening with this woman who's being healed, someone from the ruler's house chimes in. It says literally while Jesus is speaking. Don't bother him anymore. She's gone. She's dead. The amount of pain that had to have rushed over Jairus in that moment had to have been impalpable. I feel like if I was in this situation, I, I think the overflow of emotions would, would break me. Just thinking, I know you can heal, Jesus. I have faith in you, but are you kidding me right now? I come to you falling at your feet. I begged you to come to my house, and instead of just rushing over there to heal my little girl, you, who's the only one that can do it, you stop and you take a detour to help someone else. Now she's dead. Now my daughter is dead. That lady wasn't dying over there. Why didn't you just come back later? You could have found her later. You know where she's at. But Jesus and his loving kindness knew the blow this had to have been and immediately replies in verse 50. But Jesus on hearing this answered him, do not fear only believe and she will be well. Do not fear. So Jesus being fully man, fully God, he understands the emotions. He understands pain and trauma. In a couple chapters, we're gonna see the account of Lazarus. This is one of Jesus' closest friends that dies. Bring us to the shortest verse in the Bible that says Jesus wept. Weeping even though he knew he was going to bring him back to life. Jesus understands Jairus' pain. He understands our pain. He understands our grief and encourages this broken man to have faith. Trust the one who has authority over it all. Trust that it's, it's in his timing, not Jairus' timing. Trust that it's in his timing and not our timing. And that even though things might play out, might not play out the way we think they should, we need to have faith. He knows what he's doing. He does have authority over it all. It might seem like the way scenarios play out in our life can make us potentially question God question the one who has all authority over everything. Because the pain in this life, the brokenness in this life may make you feel like God's just far off and he's distant. He's off trying to heal someone else while the pain is happening right now in your life. But the truth is, he is over all, in all, and through all. We live in a broken fallen world. 
sadly bad things do happen. Where sickness and death do take place. Just this last week, I found out that my grandpa passed away. Death and sickness are a part of life. And it's hard and it's, it's difficult to deal with, but in all of it, we can know that God's timing is perfect, even though it might be so hard in the moment. That in the hardship, he is there. Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. Always taking heart in the most important truth that by Jesus' sacrifice, if we put our faith in him, we, like the woman, are made whole spiritually. We can know that no matter what the world throws at us, we're secure in Christ. It doesn't matter what status you are, how high ranking, how low at Jesus' feet, we are equals. We're all broken, helpless sinners in need of a savior and in humble, desperate faith, realizing it's only through Jesus our true healing takes place. And when the world around us goes sideways, we know we can still follow him because he has authority over it all. Follow him as Jairus does. Going back to his house here in a second, even though he heard his daughter had died. He still trusts Jesus and follows. Verse 51. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep for she's not dead, but sleeping. So is Jesus, Peter, James, John... And the girl's parents arrive at the house. It's a heart-wrenching scene. The people that knew this family, that loved this girl, they're beside themselves. They're weeping and mourning, completely distraught at the death of this 12-year-old girl. Now again, let's try to imagine being in this place at this time. Something horrific just took place. Someone you love is dead. Not mostly dead, but completely dead. In the midst of the pain, a guy walks up and says, nope, she's not dead. She's asleep. Wait, what? What? How would you respond to this? Because I feel like I might want to throw some fists around if someone said that to me. Why would you say something like that? You haven't even gone in and seen her. She's dead. We know she's dead. Verse 53, and they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. The people laughed at Jesus for saying this. And if you look at the King James, it says they mocked Jesus to scorn. It's a little bit more intense than just laughing. But I feel like this reaction makes sense. It might have even seemed like a mockery of the girl's death to these people. And in that moment, Jesus doesn't get mad. He doesn't say, fine, okay, whatever. You don't think I'm telling the truth? I'm out. He doesn't do that. Instead, he takes this other daughter by the hand. Even in the doubt and the mocking, he grabs this little girl's hand. 
Verse 54, but taking her by the hand, he called saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned and she got up at once and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what happened. Just like the woman who was made clean, even though she should have made Jesus unclean, we see the same scenario with this little girl. Jesus would have been unclean by touching a dead body, but instead brings her back to life, making her clean and whole again. And she stands and eats, which is immediate proof of the miracle Jesus just performed. Ending this passage with Jesus strictly charging them not to tell anyone what just happened. Jesus says this because he doesn't want the commotion of the miracles like this to divert the public's attention from his message. The message which is the most important thing. The true message of what he came to do. The true message that physical healing or not, he came to make us whole spiritually if we believe in what he came to do. This message Jesus came to bring is not just for the upper class. It's not just for men or lower class or women or children or doubters or apostles or crowds. This message Jesus brings is for every single person. At Jesus' feet, we're equals, all in need of a savior. At Jesus' feet, we are all healed spiritually. In desperate, humble faith, Jairus and the woman fell down at Jesus' feet, knowing he's the true healer, knowing he has authority over sickness and death. Church, if you're here today like Jairus, maybe high status, maybe having everything you could ever need, do you see the need for Jesus today? Have you thrown yourself at his feet, knowing he's the only one that saves? Or maybe you're like the woman broken, feeling second class, maybe not feeling worthy of him at all. Do you see this morning that in his eyes, you are a daughter, you are a son when you see him for who he truly is? No one is too good for Jesus and no one is too low for Jesus. Are we today knowing our need for him? In desperate, humble faith, throwing ourselves at his feet. Now I can tell you, even though, even when we do recognize this and know the truth, recognizing that no matter who we are and we're in need of him, sometimes it can be hard to remember this truth. Sometimes it can be hard to remember that he is fully and completely in control. Sometimes even after falling at his feet, when the trials of life arise, when death and sickness pop up, it can be hard to remember and recognize his authority in all of it. Maybe even questioning him. Maybe even laughing when it's not going our way. This last week marked the 10 year anniversary um, since my brother-in-law Justin passed away. He was 21 when he passed away. And I remember that, that day so very well. It was, um, Jen and I got a call at two in the morning to go to their house. We get there, 
not understanding what's going on, not knowing what's happening, and the cops tell us that he passed away. And I, I can tell you that in that moment, I, I'm sure you've experienced, you've all experienced something along those lines where in that moment, you, you're like, are you serious, God? W- what? What just happened? Why would you allow this to happen? Are you kidding me? God, what would, I don't understand why you would let a 21-year-old pass away this early. And you know, we'll never know why God allowed Justin to go so early. We'll never not feel the pain because he's gone. But like Jairus and the woman, we know when we fall at his feet in our desperation, in our desperate faith, he is there. Church, as we walk through this life, I pray that you would see the truth. That no matter who you are, there's healing at Jesus' feet. I pray that you would know that in the pain, in the trials, he is there. And in his kindness, he will stick by you. Even in the confusion and doubt, he's there. I pray that as you leave here today, you wouldn't just internalize this and move on, but you would also internalize it and act on it. If you're struggling in a season of pain and you need to be loved and reminded of the truth, don't hesitate, reach out. If you see someone around you struggling, reach out, pointing them to the truth of the healing at the feet of Christ. That Jesus' feet, there is no rank. And the truth that even though this life may be hard, there is joy knowing we have salvation through Christ. And no matter what the world throws at us, we are healed, we are adopted, and we are rescued by the one who has authority over all of it. Let's pray. Lord God, again, um, just thank you for your word. God, thank you for just uh, how powerful it is, God, to see the truth that we all need you so desperately. Thank you for the reminder and example of Jairus and this woman. God, I pray that you would help us to leave here today worshiping you, knowing that there is healing at your feet. I love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.